0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the One Drink Book Club. Today we'll be discussing Rumor of Evil, a brand new thriller by Gary Braver. In the book, a 16-year-old exchange student is accused of witchcraft, which leads to her brutal death. Twenty years later, another body is found, and detectives struggle to figure out how the two murders are connected. My guest tonight is the author, Gary Braver. Welcome, Gary. Thanks
1: for joining me. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks for having me. My pleasure.
0: Now, one thing, in, and again, this was not mandatory for you, but one of the things that we do with the One Drink Book Club is that I usually try to introduce a cocktail that is inspired by the book. That's the, the element. And I have to say, this book I really enjoyed, but it was a challenge on the cocktail side because... The characters <laughs> drank a lot of beer. We, we, there wasn't a lot of things. <laughs> and so I really came down to there's a character named Ted Rizzo who ends up in the Caribbean for a short period. So I kind of went route to night. the Caribbean route. And then uh, since the whole thing is kind of clouded in mystery and, uh, you know, dark things. So I, I decided to make a dark and storm, which I thought was appropriate for the <laughs> for the <laughs> book.
1: right and Great. Well, I told you I've got a glass oh, of sherry perfect. here. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> if I had one of those, I wouldn't get through the rest well, of the interview. <laughs>
0: well, that's true. That's the nice thing about that. Well, dark and stormies are, are ginger beer and dark rum, essentially, and a little bit of lime juice. But uh, they they still feel that's a good. little less um, potent than maybe some of the other things you're going to get in the Caribbean. Well, I have a couple of questions. This is really interesting to talk to the author about this. I'm I'm little, Rumor of Evil is your 10th book. I'm wondering, does it get easier as you write more books? I mean, does how have you honed your process
1: over the years, and do you approach it differently than you did your first book? That's, that's an excellent question, and that's a very smart question because someone who's been writing for 35, 40 years, you do become aware of changes. I used to start out outlining. I used to start out, and in fact, my, one of my earlier books, I had 90 pages of single-space outlines. And, you know, Gary, three of those, you got a book, man. What are you doing? And and you discover about a third of the way in, you take a detour that looks really good, and you never come back to the original the original outline. So I got off of that, and it became easier because I wasn't locked on a, a kind of a meta structure that I'm having difficulty sticking sure. with because these other detours made more sense. So, so that's unchanged. My, my my novels have gotten shorter. I think um, I think Elixir, early two thousands, was five hundred and sixty pages. This is three thirty something or other. I've gotten more succinct. I've gotten more into the psychological mystery and uh, category. And Jamie, the world has changed. So one becomes aware of one's audience that is demanding not the traditional jokes, sexist things, body shaming kinds of stuff. Um, I, I finished a book with Tess Garrison two years ago and I had a, a classroom scene. I wrote the male point of view ca- characters and, and she did the female point of view characters. and. I have it from the professor's point of view. He walks into a room and he talks about this kid he called Chubby. Chubby was scratched out, it was redlined. Make him big or robust, but Chubby <laughs> would, you know. So you have to turn off. you have to really be sure. aware and any kind of sexist jokes. And so you 80% of the book buyers are female. Really? And yeah, sometimes over 50, at least in the the Tess and Gary book, Choose Me, so our demographics then was 50 years old, female, and, and over, over 50. And 80% of the readership, if men read books, the wives bought them for him, just like men's ties. The wife buys the ties, this will look great at you, Jamie, that kind of thing. So I became very much aware, and it's something I taught for years, be aware of your audience. But then I too became aware of my audience and not to be offensive. And we'll talk later on about the the Romani people here because that was that, that's an issue that you know I had to deal with. Sure. Yeah. Well, did you yeah. get complaints? Did you yeah. get feedback from people in previous books where you
0: said, "Ooh, I kind of crossed the line there," or that wasn't that was taken with far more seriousness
1: than I intended it to, et cetera? Um, and not a lot. Not a, but uh, even even in uh, two books back, I, I was uh, uh, brought to task on on something that I had said. So I can't remember the specifics right now. And in the last book that Tess and I wrote, there is a very needy female, and some people saw her as a psycho female, and therefore she was already kind of walking wounded, mm-hmm. and she made her own bed and lay in it and caused all her own sure. grief. That was that was, a, I, I think, a very strong misreading. But I am very psyche sensitive to any kind of negative criticism that suggests hurtfulness sure. um, on on the, you know the insults, and so we, we keep away from that and. That that sometimes, for other writers, I've discovered is a is a potent damnation. Other writers, you know, you're, you're making sexist jokes, you're making fun of females, you blah blah blah, you are mansplaining things, and that really can turn off a lot of readers. They go on Amazon or a Cobo and read some of the reviews, and and that could be very damning and, and hurt sure. a career. Not worth it, definitely. Yeah, of, no, no, no.
0: So it's interesting. I was reading a little bit of your bio and your background, and you majored in physics. Which I thought was interesting. Uh-huh. The only other person I know who majors in physics was my father, who then went to med school. And so then you made the switch to getting a master's in English or your graduate
1: degrees in
0: English. What
1: what brought on that yeah. switch? I mean, that's a real dramatic shift. That's it's a good question, Jamie. I had two uncles that were scientists. One was a chemist and one was a metallurgist. And I read science fiction by the pound as a kid. So I wanted to grow up and make rockets to the stars, atomic driven rockets. I got into my sophomore year and realized I was doing much better with words than I was with subatomic particles. I understood words. I didn't understand atoms. And so I started a humor magazine. I was editor of a newspaper and I wrote all the copy and and the yearbooks and I was having a lot of fun writing. And I said, wait a minute, you know, and I was also, I was also hired for three summers while I was in school as a physicist at Raytheon here in Massachusetts, you know, the people who make the patriotism on that and it was a very exotic glad that looked like something out of a James Bond movie a very exotic weaponry stuff that you know is not even used today but was all theoretical and it was a, it was a kick but my heart was not in it and i wanted to to write and I needed to get a degree fast because I wanted to make a smooth transition to a master's program and a doctoral program. So I took courses at, uh, down the down the road at Clark University in Worcester. I was going to Worcester Polytechnic Institute, and I went to and then went to Harvard and a couple other schools. So by the time I graduated, I had equipped them to an English degree so I could smoothly transition into a graduate program. I knew I wanted to write fiction, and the only way to learn how to write fiction. Is to learn how to read, and the best way to learn how to read is to become an English professor. Because you're teaching other people stuff, you're studying it, you're plumbing the depth of someone's book, and you know how it was put together, and you want to pass it on to the kids. I also want to pass it on to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I learned how to read when I became a college professor, and I learned how to write. Oh, yeah. fascinating! Uh, but, but I don't, re- I, I don't regret the physics background because I taught it was one of the first science fiction courses in America. And I loved the science of the science fiction. It was it was interesting to talk about. And then when I started writing medical thrillers, I knew enough about my ignorance to ask an expert to get me from A to B and make me sound like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so the technical stuff, I was... You
0: know, <laughs> it's interesting. I just uh, finished Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir, which has a lot of science in it. I don't know if you've read The Martian and, and those. And I'm so impressed with his ability to... I don't know enough on the science side to know whether he's
1: right or not, Mm -hmm. but it sounds good. And and it's really interesting. Yes. A pseudoscience is what really makes up most of science fiction. I mean, when HG Wells wrote, uh, The Time Machine, I mean, there was no such thing as a time machine, but he did talk about the fourth dimension, you know, and and he managed to fake it and cover it (laughs) off. Make it sound pseudoscientific. So
0: when you started teaching and you were a professor and you started teaching writing, had you written any novels at that point or were you, where did that come
1: in the timeline? I had the great fortune of having as my office mate, Robert B. Parker, who became an international bestseller with the Spencer novels and, and, and uh, the Sunday Randall novels. And he was my like, closest friend to his death in 2010. And in se- mid-70s, he said, I think I'm going to write a book. And uh, so he started writing the Spencer, the first Spencer novel, um, the Godwolf Manuscript. I watched him demythologize the process in the second and third book. I mean, he'd write five pages a day and he would send it off to an agent and Eventually, it got published. So he mythologized the process. I was chomping at the bit because I was teaching literature to my students and I, I wanted to write something, but I didn't have a story. And then I took up scuba diving and went on an expedition uh, to Mallorca, Spain with a group of scientists. And we were diving for Phoenician and Roman re- Roman shipwrecks, second century to fifth century BC. Oh, wow. And we were attacked by pirates uh, underwater. We were fanning away shards of amphora and other pottery uh a, a two thousand year old boat there's no there's no wood yeah. left there's all there's ballast stones, it's like bowling balls and that is a giveaway And maybe an oval shape and was, so we were shading stuff away and a boat cut across our bubbles we had a rubber zodiac and the number one it's an it was a rubber rubber boat with a red and white fiber sure. strike so it's really clear that people were so once is an accident, twice, you're getting kind of stupid. Three times it's it's on purpose. The 10th time, our diaphragms were flapping and we are running out of air. So when he finally took off, we shot up and he went right into the sunset. It was blinding us. He had slashed our uh, Zodiac with a machete. And long story short, uh, we did not know this, but we were diving on the turf of a local godfather- uh, who was a lawyer during the week and he would steal wrecks and sell the booty to collectors and museums all <laughs> over the world. We had no idea. Oh my gosh. And, the only way we got our passports back is we had a state-of-the-art underwater metal detector. He wanted. I See, so you get us our passport because the commandant, the, yeah. the, the yeah. naval police are in his pocket. You get us our passports back and let us get back diving. He'll let you borrow this for a day. So I said, if I got out of this alive, I've got a, a novel in it. And that was that. I came back and wrote the first novel, Atlantis Fire. I just moved it to Santorini, Greece, and tied it up with Plato's Atlantis Legend. <laughs> it did well. <laughs> that was, yeah. Well, that's a great... That's, how it That's a up. great
0: way to kick it off.
1: Yeah. yeah so what
0: yeah. gave you the, what was the impetus for Rumor of Evil? What What really motivated you or what kind of planted
1: the seed of this right. story? Okay, good question. When Tess Garrison and I finished uh, Choose Me, and it was a cop procedural novel. I had cops in two other books. So I never had a, a series. And she said, why don't you write a series? You know, you know, you handle this well. And I got a contract and the contract from Ocean View Publishers said, we'd like to have a series from you. I said, that sounds great. So- I had written two other cop novels, so I had a sense of forensic and procedure and this and that. And um, so I designed the two, a, a, a partner, a two homicide detective partnership, and a male and a female. And then I needed, I knew there was going to be a cold case that's going to relate to a murder in the present right. scene, in the opening paragraph. Yeah. And I wanted that to be a cover up to something that happened 20 years before. And like any crime writer, and you probably talked to others uh, yourself, Jamie, we keep a file of very real life crimes. Oh, it's a really know? disturbing, bizarre. Uh, you say, Why did this happen? How did people do this kind of thing? And the, what stuck in my mind was a story out of Waukesha, Wisconsin in 2014, when two 12-year-old girls lured another 12-year-old girl into the woods and they stabbed her 19 times. The reason they gave was they wanted to appease an internet cartoon character called Slender Man, this long, elongated male without a face, wearing a black suit and white shirt. And they believed that if they did not sacrifice their girlfriend, Slender Man would kill their families. Oh my gosh. I mean, it doesn't make sense. The victim survived and the two girls are still in psychiatric institutions. So what I was fascinated with, how kids do this? And I got into understanding and in some of the research of bullying. And it's a real scourge of American adolescents, both physically and psychologically. So I studied studies, I researched the studies of bullying and found out that the the bully always picks an outsider as a victim, someone who is either physically different, who speaks differently, um, who has an accent or a lisp or does odd things or dresses oddly, unlike the adolescent norm, or comes from a different demographic or they're foreign, they speak in an accent. accent. So I needed to have an outsider as my victim. And so I dreamt up a, an exchange student, 16-year-old exchange student from a rural pig farm in Slovakia. And I made her really rural and really uncool, but beautiful. And she is of Romani extraction, sometimes called Roma extraction. So she is, she's very attractive. And, and the kids have a great time Americanizing her, you know, introducing her to hot dogs and backyard barbecues, Mexican food, and rock concert. And they really enjoying this. And they give her cool I'll take her to the mall and get her cool clothes. But I needed something to turn dark. So at a pizza party with all these kids, I had her read Palms. And everything, it's kind of fun. They're having a lot of laughs. He's reading poems and suddenly something turns very weird at the party and she bolts out of there. And then a few days later, bad things start happening to her her friends, these kids and their friends' family. And that's when the rumors start flying. And that's when the terrible myths, wait a minute, Roma, Romani, aren't those gypsies? And don't gypsies, aren't they thieves? And 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 didn't they start in olden days the bubonic plague? And don't they drink the blood of Christian babies? And don't they worship Satan? And aren't they witches in disguise? So as I was writing this all came together, how did the Middle Ages handle witches? They burned them. So the backstory is the Vadima, who they call Lulu. Loves to sleep outside under the stars and this affluent home in Lexington, Massachusetts, where she's uh, been hosted by this family. Uh, The father built a treehouse in a backyard and she loves sleeping out there uh, in lovely weather and and watch the stars. And on a Halloween night, she dies in a a fire that takes her life. And um, that became the backstory. But she is the ultimate outsider. And it tapped into... Adolescent as well as adult conspiracy theories, which are in you know we hear about these days, as well as scapegoating the immigrant. Yeah, we've had issues Clearly. with immigrants. No. so she was a she worked out to be a, a good bully victim. Yeah.
0: yeah, and it's interesting. I thought one of the things I, I liked about it, and I, I also recognized was tough. Is there's a lot of teenage girl dialogue in the book? And I, I know that that is hard to do without it becoming a caricature of teenage girls. My daughter is 22, so it's not so long ago that she was a teenager. And I would find it very challenging to write in her voice, especially when it came to, to dialogue. So how did, what did you draw on in order to make that
1: sound realistic and not over the top, so to speak? Sure. Well, I, I raised two Two boys, and my wife and I, and they passed through the teenage stage. And I remember their female friends and how they talked and the uh, parties I would commit in here that very interested in dialogue. I always was as a writer. And I think it was that. And also college kids, college freshmen only, you know, they're still 18 years old. Yeah. So I, I've had a lot of freshman classes in the past and I, I know how they talk. So it was that the experience, the exposure that really, you know, uh, to them for over 40 years that I learned the voices. Yeah. Well, and and I
0: appreciated the couple instances of uh, using wicked as an adjective. As a Midwest guy, didn't hear a lot of wickeds, but uh, I've lived on the East Coast long That's enough Boston. that I, I know where that comes from, the Boston yeah. influence. Right, right. So one of the things I thought was interesting, you talk about the guys, you know, writing for men, writing for women, there were a lot of potential villains in this book there were a lot of guys that were not great morgan's dad jordan was not a good guy ted was <laughs> you know rizzo was right. not a good guy
1: uh right. there were
0: in even some of the girls you know morgan clearly was somewhat of a sociopath there were and even the the other girls in that kind of gaggle of girls nobody was particularly right, sympathetic right. Now, did right. you, are, are you just a cynical person or were you trying to create <laughs> a host of characters that the reader could could easily say, well, if maybe it was that person, maybe it was that person?
1: Exactly. Yeah. That, what you just said, Jamie, I, I absolutely. Now, you're trying to create red herrings. You're trying to create legitimate sounding clues and fake clues. And you uh, and the nature of a who done is to keep the reader guessing. But you have to parse these clues out and make them sound like real motives that someone would do this kind of thing because of blah, blah, blah. And I had to give different different motives to each of the people that I was setting up as a potential suspect. Sure. That's kind of fun because then you have to think about how could this otherwise nice kid be so right. mean and and maybe even you know set this woman on fire. Um and so that is that is the 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 trick of trying to Keep people guessing, but never pull a rabbit out of the hat at the end and never say it's the butler did it. You know, you can't get away with yeah. that. They'll, they'll, they'll burn <laughs> the book. <laughs> so It has to be, oh my goodness, I didn't see that coming kind of thing. And I, but still all these others get very close to, to the fire and say, they all did it or, Ooh, now I get, sure. you know, so, it, but it really means. Going back and lining up all the ducks, once you make a decision who the, the villain really is, you have to it's like a dropping a pebble in the pond, the ripples go up. You have to change and change and change every chapter so that it has that aha and it it, it has a zen rightness to it. I was yeah. gonna
0: you know, I was gonna ask that. Do you do you ever go back? I mean, do you have people that you trust to read it and say, Did, did it, I make did this did too it, obvious it, or yeah. did I, I not make it, it obvious enough? Because I can imagine right. being yeah. the writer, you get so close to it that you think Oh, I've given super obvious clues. Uh, it's kind of like yes. once you watch The Sixth Sense and you know the, the, the ending of it, if you go back and watch it again, you think, how did I not figure that out? There's all of these clues along the way. Yeah. Um, so how do you, you kind of right. figure out that line between sharing enough, like you said, you know, not doing a total yeah. fake out at the end, but then not giving so much that right. it's so obvious.
1: Right, right. Well, I, I do have, a, I have two good readers. <clears throat> My wife, who is, is, a, is a much more voracious reader than I am because I'm spending time writing, uh, and she taught English for a while too. So, and she is a very good reader and you know, reads very smart books. Um, and she picked up on stuff that needed to be worked on. I also have a remarkable agent, a dream agent, who is not only an agent and does all the ugly stuff, he is a good reader. Oh, well. I mean, he is brilliant. And he pointed out stuff that needed to be worked on. Um, and it, it all made sense. And so those two readers um, were pretty much all I needed. And when I went back and rewrote the stuff according to their directions, and they said, this is working, this is not working, it all fell into place and made sense. I mean, writing is really rewriting. I, I teach oh, us my, 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 my students all the time. I mean, you know, if you don't do any rewrite, you're you're either magically and you know endowed or you're 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 not going to make it. Parker never rewrote, and he was the most verbal person I knew. about Robert Parker, I mean, his <laughs> desk was right near mine. I watched him write, and he get three hundred pages, and his publisher would say, "Could you give us another fifty more?" He says, "No," <laughs> <laughs> and it, 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 it is hummed. It was it was it was remarkable, but I have to rewrite, and and even Tess Gerritsen, we got two thirds to choose me. And we had no idea who the villain was. We had five suspects. Sure. And she said, what about this person? And I said, no, that's not going to work. That's just, you know, that's, that person is too good early on, and I don't want to change that and make them bad. And uh, so we finally, I, I suggested someone, and she liked that, and we wrote that um, so that it made sense. So two heads in that case worked well. We also had editor. We had an outside editor read it and make suggestions. So I don't know anyone who doesn't have alpha and beta readers, sure. whatever they're called. And, uh and so I, I, I have my wife and I have a Esmond, Esmond Harmsworth. It's not a great that name, is, Esmond Harmsworth.
0: <laughs> now, have you read either reviews or heard people, fans discuss your books and add more meaning to things than, than you ever intended? I, part of the reason I asked that is I do a lot of copywriting for ad and I've done a lot of issue ads, uh-huh. you know, I live in Washington. That's kind of my, my trade. And, Some of those ads have ended up in college textbooks as examples of one thing or another. And what I'm always laughing about is they'll have these discussion questions that say, you know, oh, the creator of this ad, the designer chose the girl is looking to the left and she is got red hair and, you know, what did the designer mean when they did that? And I kind of laughed and I think, well, the designer meant that that was the royalty free stock photo that was the cheapest and the best one in a pinch to use. You know, they've assigned a lot more meaning to some of the decisions than really existed. Have you ever found that where people are analyzing your work to the point where you're thinking, well, geez, no, I just like the color green. I I wasn't that I, you know,
1: Yes, uh, people have found things in books that had more meaning to them than it had to me. Uh, And sometimes I applaud them. Sometimes they find really dark stuff I never really intended or on on a a conscious level I didn't (laughs) intend. Um, And and I'm I'm gratified to be a plus, but other times some of the characters I've I've created, people don't like. And I'm interested in audience, a reader's reaction. I would not want to hang out with this person. I mean, I wouldn't want to hang out with Macbeth either, but he's a fascinating (laughs) character. True.
0: Not everybody's Ted Lasso. You know, you're not going to want to hang out
1: with him. And and, and some of the most awful villains in the world are the most admired, I mean, Hannibal Lecter. Very true. I mean, amazing that because he's very, very smart and cultured, he happens to be a psychopathic cannibal. (laughs) You you kind
0: of root for him. You You wouldn't mind going out (laughs) to dinner with him as long as he wasn't going to eat you it would be
1: interesting. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> going back to the Roma descent of your character, the yeah. victim, how did you end up choosing that? Was that something you had had experience with or was that kind of, hey, I'm going to try to, you know, there was
1: a list of things and I chose that one. Right, right. couple of those. <clears throat> um, my wife and I had been to Italy a few times and they're always, you always being warned, watch out the Roma Kids are going to pickpocket you, and I was there with friends, and he, my friend, got pickpocketed on the subway after we warned him. Any case, um, I, I was interested in the kind of outsider prejudice against Roma, whether or not they did it, uh, or whether I was exaggerated. It was I needed to have an outsider. A, I wanted a foreign student. I didn't want to take a cliche somebody from some of the other countries that might have been vilified and or prejudiced against. So I wanted to take someone who's I haven't read of any Roma so-called gypsy kids who were uh, parts of novels, they may have yep. been. I know there have been uh, some Italian operas uh, where a, a royal royal character falls in love with a gypsy woman. Uh, any case, and I was fascinated with the awful myths that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, you know, they, they worship Satan and they, they put hexes on people. And that worked out because the climax of that backstory is Halloween. And If you've been to Halloween, your kids have been to Halloween, you know that there's a it's probably the most celebrated holiday in America. I mean, people spend fortunes more on that than than Christmas. So it it is it really it begins early back at the end of August. All the all the pumpkins and things start coming out and it's really go quite um, exotic in their in their uh, costume parties. And there is always the kind of supernatural element, the kind of mystical stuff, the occult that comes in too. And so I, I wanted to exploit that, particularly tender and somewhat paranoid adolescent <laughs> minds that here we have this strange woman from a pig farm in Slovakia and she's a Roma person and don't they do all these awful things? And that is what I uh, um, exploited. And, uh, un- and you know, it's it's so unfair because Roma people... Are outcasts throughout Asia and Europe. we've seen them in caravans in Greece and no. Italy and they're always shunned, they're always ostracized uh, which is very painful and so in any case I just thought that might be an interesting you know, microcosm of that. You have had books before that were potentially going to be
0: movies or option to be movies. who do you did you when you were writing this you knew you were going to be doing a series you've got Kirk and Mandy our, our detective crew. Did you envision anybody in your head actor wise that would, would
1: potentially be the people who would play these characters? For I wanted somebody in their forties and I thought of Christian Bale. Sure. Who is you know, he is he can give angst, he can give um he can look like he's tormented. Um if he, if, if he were younger, Sean Penn might be. Ooh. But Christian Bale is tall and lean, he's good looking, and he looks he can he get act troubled. Kirk wants his wife back. They are separated uh, a year before the book opens up. Their 15-year-old daughter was killed in a hit-and-run. They never found the, the killer, and, and that sent him into a great, great funk that ended up uh, causing their marriage to break down. In any novel, there are two quests. For a cop novel, the, or the, any kind of detective novel, the public outer quest is who left that body in chapter one. The personal quest is where you get the character is, I want my wife back, his yeah. personal quest. Everyone who is anything in a detective novel has to have some, a protagonist is, has to have some baggage that endears the reader to that protagonist. So I had him wanting his wife back, and she is a, a wonderful woman. Um, she's a professor of this or that, and but she has never been with another man for the, all the years they dated and been married. So I needed to make him empathetic for the reader. And that's why I, I came up with him. Uh, and I'm sorry, what was the original <laughs> question? I think I going off well, <laughs> well, I was asking about
0: actors who would play Mandy and Kirk, if you had thought yes. about that. Oh, it. yeah.
1: And Christian Bale. Yeah. And I think yeah, that's a good be, Yeah, one. definitely Christian Bale. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and also uh, Bradley Cooper, too. He can act uh, over a spectrum of emotions. For, for Mandy Wing, she is a woman married to a woman, and they have a child. And she is impulsive, she's very, very smart. she's being mentored by Kirk, so she doesn't go off the rails because she um sometimes leaps on this he did it, he yeah. did it, you know, and she had joined the police force because she wanted to protect women against men who have abused women, and her mother was badly abused, so she comes you know uh, uh, slightly charged, and I thought of Christian Stewart oh yeah, you know, uh, uh, she sees. I, about thirty, thirty-two, and she be, and she can very, very tough. I mean, I think of the Twilight series and and other uh, movies she was in. Someone lean and attractive, but a little edgy, and someone who can show compassion because she has a child, and strong enough to get over all the demons that have beset her. This character of Mandy, so those two, you know And if there's a God listening. (laughs) Exactly. And one of the things I liked about Mandy
0: is I liked that she um, was gay and that she had her wife, um, but that it wasn't it wasn't that big of a deal overall. Like there wasn't a lot of discussion about it. I I thought it made it an interesting partnership, but it wasn't it it didn't become this. Oh, now Kirk as this chauvinistic male kind of comes to terms with right. that this woman could be a good partner he started out thinking hey she's sure. a young partner I think she's smart you know she, we probably have to polish yeah. these edges but it wasn't it didn't turn into um if I got all these preconceived notions about uh somebody who's gay and somebody in the police force or right, a woman right, in the police right. force it was kind of given that she would right. be a professional, and it was really treated like a rookie, yeah, yeah. which I thought was nice. And and I yeah. actually thought my favorite characters yeah, yeah. in terms of niceness was Mandy and his wife Olivia. You're right; they were yeah. they were the you know right. the nicest yeah. people. Yeah,
1: uh, so I model my females after my wife. Ah. That's <laughs> much nicer. And <laughs> even if you didn't, that's a good thing to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's
0: it's safe. Yes, right. <laughs> um, uh, last, my last question to you is what. What, where do these guys go next? What's, what's the, if this is a
1: series, where do do Kirk and Mandy end up? Oh yeah. The the next book is already done. It's called Heat of the Moment. (laughs) And, uh, and Mandy has a much bigger part in this because the particular, no, now at the end of the things work out nicely for Kirk and Olivia in the next book, uh, their particular issue is she's 41 years old. And he wants her to have another child, and she is you know, is, is reticent about that. Uh, and and Mandy helps because she has a child and helps Olivia feel positive about the possibility of bringing another child into their life. And it's not a replacement for for Megan who was killed. It's just giving Megan keeping mem- Megan's memory alive and giving her a brother or a sister. So and in a sense, it's and Mandy's fabulous that way. I mean, I really liked her. She really comes out in the second book. Uh, it is a murder mystery. It opens up, and this is not spoiling anything. It opens up when a conservative English professor, who's very, very, very good, is found dead in a very liberal English uh, uh, English department in, in a fictitious Boston school with an antique Fijian war club in his. Face. Oh my God! So where did this Fiji war club from, come from? Who who did this? Of course, and there are six potential suspects who all have. Really sweet smelling motives for having gotten this guy. It was it was fun to write. Getting back at some of my colleagues.
0: <laughs>
1: well, that no, sounds like so. a lot of
0: fun. I look forward to that book. Yeah, well, Gary, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. I, I will admit now you are the first author that I've interviewed. Most of the time, no. I'm I'm discussing oh. it with another fan of a book and things like that. So. I appreciate you uh,
1: jumping on, and this has um, been exciting. Thank you. Thank you for making me number one. By the way, we just had good news today that the editors of Amazon picked the book as one of the top 10 mysteries of the month of October. So we got a nice little accolade. That's great. (laughs) And and I was
0: just going to ask, where where can people get rumor of evil and... Tell me a little yeah. bit more of where they can find it.
1: It, it. It's it's pre-orderable right now. Just going on Amazon or Kobo or Barnes and Noble, and it comes out officially next Tuesday, October ten. Hopefully, bookstores everywhere will have it, and if they don't, you can ask the, the clerk at the cash register, "Please order this." And but if you, uh, it, I think there's a discount right now for the hardcover as well as Kindle on on amazon and the other sites uh like i said Kobo and barnes and noble and and my own website com, is a button you can click yeah if you don't remember that amazon yeah
0: <laughs> well great um a reminder to those listening uh please uh, subscribe to the podcast it's the one drink book club uh, wherever you get your podcast and you can visit and review uh, video as well as audio at one thank you very much and have a good evening